Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the case for and against reparations. So, Richard, big cover story in The Atlantic recently by ta Coates, getting a lot of attention right now, making the case that Given the injustices suffered by African Americans throughout American history, including but not limited to slavery, there's a strong case for giving reparations to modern-day African Americans. Now, partially because this is a heated issue, but partially because I want to anchor us in first principles before we get into the details, let's take this out of the present context for a minute. Let's say it's 1865 or 1866, U.S. in the middle of Reconstruction. In that context, a generation of people who've been slaves still alive, the vast majority of former slave owners still alive, would something along these lines have been appropriate then as compensation with the actual parties involved? In other words, is the operative issue from a classical liberal perspective how directly affected the people seeking redress are? Well, there's a basic deep tension in this question between the position of redress for wrongs done and the principle of legality. A classical liberal, like all libertarians, and in fact all people of decent beliefs, think that slavery is a violation of the most fundamental rights to autonomy that any individual has, and that the institution of slavery as it existed in the South rested upon a series of fabrications, none of which withstood the, um, shall we say, the scrutiny of the time or of any other date. You could go back as far as Justinian, and he talks about slavery. He says it's against the natural law, but by the way, it happens to be in Rome, so you will see a treatment of exquisite subtlety dealing with slavery within the Roman context. Uh, but the other principle that tends to be at war with that is the principle of legality, uh, which says that once you decide that certain kinds of practices are legal when done, you ought to be extremely reluctant to retroactively change them to make those things illegal. And they're at war. And what they tried to do, I think, at the time of the South was to use reconstruction as a way to avoid the particular objects of compensation. And part of that program was 40 acres and a mule, which would come from the government so it didn't have to be attached to a particular slave owner. But it was clearly understood that it had multiple functions, one of which was redress for past wrongs and the other of which was to try to make up the economic deficits that the former slaves had so that they could assume their position in society. And there's no question that when you start dealing under these very short-term type arrangements where the particular victims and the particular wrongdoers can be paired together, uh, the case for reparations um, is simply a variation on the case of damages for false imprisonment, only this is a long imprisonment with brutal conditions. So normatively, I think the case in favor of it is very strong. So the issue is then how, when you start to shift away from a very short time frame to a long time frame, what happens to change the equation. So take us there as we move it into the present day. First off, let's start with this. Uh, why now? I mean this issue has, has come up uh, on occasion over the last couple of decades. It seems to be getting more traction in this instance with the Coates piece in The Atlantic and it seems to be taken a little bit more seriously by the intellectual classes. What do you attribute that distinction to? Well, first of all, the year is 2014, which means it's the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights Movement and its crowning achievement in 
1964. And this has brought forward all sorts of uh, remembrances. I was at a conference at Stanford um, last January about this, and there's a long article that I will have along with many other people talking about the 1964 Act and its various provisions. Uh, NYU will run a panel on this subject uh, uh, come the beginning of the fall. So there's a lot of concern. Then the question is, well, how do you interpret the changes from 1964? And there's a very deep division of opinion. We did a show, for example, on voting rights, and the question as to whether or not in the Shelby County case uh, you had the kinds of conditions that warranted uh, very heavy federal oversight of state um, elections in county districts that were concerned with utilities. Uh, The decision, which was a very split decision, essentially said, look, it's not appropriate to do this now based on 1964 stuff. And there was a huge dissent by Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying uh, the camel may or the leopard may have changed its spots, but it's still a leopard and it's still dangerous. And so there's a real difference with respect to perception. And, you know, I took a fairly strong position that there is nothing more astonishing in the United States, in a good sense of the word, than the overall improvement of race relations in those periods, apart from the kind of litigation that you have. But if you look at voting participation, if you look at a whole variety of indicators as to who is where inside the system, it's literally been transformed and by and large for the better. Not to say that there aren't serious economic dislocations, but that on the legal front, uh, this should be regarded as, generally speaking, a success in terms of the way in which it turned things down. But if you believe that it has been a failure, or it has not been reached its promise, the case for reparation says, look, we've got to celebrate this particular event by recognition of the fact that there's a long way to go and reparations would be something that we can do in order to achieve that result. Exactly the form they take is something which is left very elusive by Coates when he writes his articles, uh, but at least the point is in fact in the air. That brings us to the question I was going to ask you. When it comes to the modern case for reparations, which in your judgment – is is more problematic, the ideological argument for it or the actual the practi- practical arguments about how you would actually go about implementing such a system? Well, I've generally put more of the weight on the second than opposed to the first. Um, about 10 years ago, we had a conference on this subject and I wrote a piece on this issue for the Boston University Law Review, I believe it was. And I said, well, it depends on how you think about this. And the first thing is, do you think about this as a legal problem or as a political problem? If you think about it as a legal problem, there's got to be some closure, some statute of limitations, which says after you've gone on this particular issue for 140 or 150 years, uh, the legal system simply cannot take anything into account. Uh, There are too many moves on both sides of the equation. Uh, People who were uh, enslaved at the time may have received all sorts of benefits. Uh, Their children may have done very, very well. They may have intermarried outside the race. If you look on the other side, it turns out that large number of Americans weren't even in this country at the time of the Civil War, which certainly includes uh, my parents um, were born in this country. Grandparents were immigrants into this country. They didn't do anything wrong. If you think of America as more of a rainbow rather than as a white 
black type situation, you have to ask the question as to why it is that all the other groups that have come to the United States from South Asia and from East Asia and um, from Latin America and from West Indies and so forth, why they should be put into this kind of a position. If you try to figure out how much money you're going to provide them, there's no ready formula. The benefits that may have been obtained by slave owners have been either consumed on the one hand or dissipated far and wide amongst their heirs. Uh, The system, in fact, had negative wealth, so it's not as though there's this huge bundle of money which sits aside in a tiny bank account and earns compound interest, which makes the sum owed in reparation equal to the gross national product. It's just too difficult to sort of work this thing out, so you're going to have to use very rough and ready proxies. And so the question is, well, is the community Development Act, when it gives a preference to minority individuals with respect to loans, is that a set off against reparations or is it not? And it just keeps on going that way. The closer you look, the harder it gets. So the moral case becomes attenuated by the passage of time and all the confusion that it entails. Richard, you have a list of policies in the piece that you wrote about this for defining ideas that that you think would be more worthwhile as far as helping black Americans. You talk about charter schools. You talk about tearing down barriers to black participation in the economy. Mm. Um, I'm not going to put words in Coates' mouth, but it's not hard to imagine him or someone like him saying, no, removing barriers isn't enough because you can put me on an even playing field in the present tense, but that doesn't change the legacy of deprivations, put me in my present station. Who knows where I'd be if the people in my family tree who were enslaved had been free. It, it's essentially the old the Lyndon Johnson argument. You don't take a person who's been hobbled mm-hmm. by chains and bring him up to the starting line and say you're free to compete with everyone else. How do you respond to that argument? Well, I mean, the first thing, start with the charter tools type situation. Uh, the irony is the greatest supporters of charter schools are not the progressives who basically want to keep the union monopoly intact. They tend to be hedge fund guys, institutional investors, all of whom have a strong libertarian streak and a few extra dollars in their pocket, to put it mildly, which they put to this arrangement. My son is, in fact, uh, the recruitment director at the Success Academy and notes somewhat to his own amazement how powerful various members of his boards are who come from this kind of community. Uh, so it's not as though when you say let's leave this to the market that the market is simply a series of voluntary exchanges for mutual gain there are large numbers of people who actually share this kind of vision and are doing their level best to overall improve this situation and i think it's one of the shortcomings of coach's article is that he tends to treat everybody who is not in the reparations game as somehow or other being against it my view has always been that voluntary contributions supported by taxable um, deductions under the charity system that we have in place will produce much larger gains than some kind of government program which is going to send the money down one kind of a rat hole or another so i think that's the first thing the second thing is do not belittle the importance of getting rid of the barriers. Let's just take one kind of simple number, which is the unemployment rate amongst black teenagers now relative to what it was, say, 60 years ago. And, you know, the minimum wage law increase in the United States has had a devastating effect on that community, so that by and large for both the men and the women in this group, say 16, 17, sort of boys and girls going into adulthood, these unemployment rates are close to 40%. You go back to the unemployment rates at the height of segregation in 1953 and it turns out the unemployment rates are about equal. 
What happens is the wages differentiate. Uh, workers with less skills, mainly black workers, will get less money, but they'll get jobs. And it's real important to understand that shutting people out of the system doesn't only cut them out of the wages that they would otherwise earn, which might be pitifully low, as people would say, but it also cuts them out from learning the social skills that will allow them to advance and to earn higher wages. It will force some of them into lives of crimes and so forth. So getting rid of barriers is something which saves public costs on the one hand and improves overall performance and why somebody should say, you know, we don't want to do that. We'd rather sort of rub somebody else's nose in the dirt so as to make sure they feel guilty about it strikes me as being some kind of a mistake. There are also other programs which essentially are heavily racially contingent today. There's no question if you look at the admission system in any public or private institution today, you will see that there are different standards, different scholarship awards level and so forth. If the country was so uniformly racist, you have to explain why it is that these things persist at a very high level. I've been in private institutions all my life. And in fact, I can tell you, having been a dean for a very short period of time, you cannot run an institution unless you have a sensibly managed program which takes into account these historical inequities and tries to make some adjustments for it. So if everybody perceives the strength of the case, that's an argument not for having the program by government coercion, but for letting it work through these other kinds of channels. And in fact, the government contribution, as far as I'm concerned, with respect to redress of grievances, has taken as an aggregate been negative, not positive. Final question, Richard. Finish the sentence. At this point, the best thing that could happen for race relations in America would be what? Essentially trying to remove the barriers to entry in labor markets coupled with, so the other half, the improvement of the educational system so that when people do reach the age in which they have to enter into the market, they have a set of marketable skills. And these are social skills on how to show up at a job, um, how to interact with other people, how to give and to take orders, how to respond to customers and to suppliers, to answer the phone, all this kind of stuff which is so critical. And also to make sure that people have some mastery of dealing with abstract symbols. This is not going to be an age of the broom or the brush. It's going to be an age of the computer. It's going to be an age of being able to deal with letters, being able to deal with numbers, being able to deal with graphs, being able to deal with charts and tables and so forth. We must teach our young children to do those things. And what's interesting about the charter school movement, it is absolutely dead focused on that. You go into the Success Academy, they don't have students at the Success Academy. They have scholars at the Success Academy. And every classroom has a college banner sitting on the wall indicating to you that this is the expectation we have of you. We will settle for nothing less. Getting into a charter school today for a child who's fortunate enough to win that lottery is easily worth several hundred thousand dollars in terms of life prospects both before and after they get their degrees. We have to open up those opportunities to more people and we have to understand that whenever there are politicians or unions that try to shut down competition, they're doing a double disservice. They're keeping people out of a network which could actually work and they're basically getting rid of the only spur that will make public institutions more responsive because it's amazing what competition will do in the public space to improve the level of the public schools. All right, Richard. Thank you as always and thanks to everybody listening. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.